hello guys we have two phones right next to each other riz is on one of the phones and so we are, we are trying to do this uh, through an analog way because the app doesn't work for riz uh, so riz can can you uh, say something now yes i'm i'm being able to hear you uh, let me know if you can hear me uh, fine right now okay i i can hear you but can someone else on the call also confirm that they can they can hear riz okay perfect yeah all right uh, so so finally we got this working so, sorry about this <laughs> no, sorry sorry you know it's kind of strange that it's not working or that like I, i was able to participate but i wasn't able to uh, listen or you weren't able to uh, listen listen to me either well maybe this is one one reason to prefer newsletters over podcasts and things like that you you don't get into technical difficulties as much <laughs> right right that's true uh, so anyway uh, i just want to introduce uh, riz uh, well uh, he he's a famous guy on on twitter so you guys probably know riz very well uh, but he has this wonderful uh, newsletter called mbi deep dives so each month what riz does is uh, he takes a particular company and he analyzes it and he analyzes it in extraordinary amount of detail and uh, he publishes uh, he he considers almost you know when when i look at his some of his analysis uh, he he looks at so many factors that i would not even think to consider so so he he does a phenomenal job at doing uh, this this kind of analysis and then um, he he builds a valuation model for it and uh, which which is in the form of an excel file uh, he figures out you know uh, what what he expects for the future of the company how the future economic characteristics will look like uh, how much capital the company will uh, require what returns it will earn on that capital all that sort of thing he builds a, a model for it and then he puts all this information together into this uh, beautiful report and then he sends it out to, to his uh, subscribers every every month uh, uh or so and uh, so this is his newsletter and he started completely from scratch so when i first uh, um, got to know him on on twitter uh, riz had about 10000 followers or so uh, now he has about 86000 followers but at the time that i first knew him he had no business he was actually working for a for a company on on wall street and then he quit that job and he started this business and he is in in a short period of time he has grown that business from 0 dollars in revenue to about uh, 168000 or something like that 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 was that was the figure as of uh, uh, the the end of uh, 2021 uh, so this is a phenomenal achievement uh, for uh, for somebody who just started a newsletter business and uh, so uh, i i want to ask him all kinds of questions Uh, about the newsletter business and about how he analyzes companies and so on and i think we can all learn from riz uh, both about um, how he goes about his life as a business operator and also uh, how he looks at businesses uh, from an investor's standpoint so we can learn both these things from riz today and that's why i'm so excited to have him on this call uh, so before that i'd like to uh, talk about one small uh, sort of story uh, with with riz and me so uh, at the time that i first knew riz i had about 300 followers on on twitter and i wrote this first thread 
on Twitter uh, about this uh, uh, probability puzzle called the, the Kelly criterion. And uh, what happened then was I shared this thread with Riz because I knew him at the time. And Riz, immediately, he retweeted this thread. And at the time, I said uh, Riz had about 10,000 followers. So I'm this small account with 300 followers. Riz is this comparatively big account with 10,000 followers. And he retweets my thread on the Kelly criterion. And that uh, single retweet from Riz, that, that is what set the snowball rolling for me. And so during that very weekend, when Riz uh, first started the snowball rolling by retweeting this, uh, I gained about 2,000 followers, which is all a chain reaction of Riz's uh, retweet of my tweet. And then uh, that, that is when the, the power of Twitter um, really came home. I realized that, okay, there, there is something to this. If, if you can get 2,000 followers or something like that over one weekend, uh, from one big account retweeting. It is really possible to build an audience if you're able to share useful content uh, week after week. And so I started writing these weekly threads and so on. And uh, I, I gained an audience. And then now I have this podcast and I'm able to talk to you guys and so on. Riz was the guy who uh, set the whole snowball rolling. And for that, I'm very, very thankful to him. And I wanted to share this story with you guys. Uh, I, I I don't know what what should, what should I call you? Should I call you a real name or or ten k name? I don't know what's the protocol. Oh, here. sorry, Pe people call me ten k on the show. Okay, got it. Right, so ten uh, k. That's that. You know, I probably should just uh, download this episode and share with my you know friends and families and everyone and 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 let them hear you know, how how much glowing praise I'm getting from you know, someone like you because I have I probably have haven't heard such praise from anyone ever, right? So uh, it's it's been a real pleasure and I I, I hope uh, people don't have, don't come here with lofty expectations. Uh, I think one of my mottos in life and in investing and probably in probably all spheres of life is to operate in low expectation. Uh, so I, I would encourage, uh, you know, I, I just read your description of mine and I also listened to your description. This is overly generous uh, and all, all the listeners uh, or your readers or, you know, anyone who follows me on Twitter, uh, I, I would encourage them to have a lot lower expectation. It's too uh, late for that, my friend. <laughs> yeah, maybe I shouldn't have, shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't have let you speak before I, I did. You know, I, I probably should have kind of, you know, set the ground rules uh, running and then uh, let you speak. <laughs> well, uh, so, so, so let, let's, uh, let me ask you the, the, the first question and I'll give you the chance to speak. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so uh, so you you did an MBA at at Cornell, right? You 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 have an MBA yeah. from from Cornell University. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'm I'm always curious. I say I I don't have any formal business school training or anything like that. So my my question is, um, so can can you talk about uh, what what an MBA teaches you um, about investing and what an MBA doesn't teach you, which you still have to learn for investing. Right, that's a great question to start with. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I always, always kind of see, see and, and observe 
there are like, you know, two camps uh, when it comes to business school. Like uh, one group says, hey, this is a proven path uh, for you to kind of, you know, go into investment management uh, career. And there's other group of people who kind of, you know, think that all the things that this B-School teaches are, are, are sort of BS. Uh, so, you know, investing is something that's like a personal journey and you should probably learn on your own uh, and all that. I think the truth is perhaps, you know, as it's usually the case, you know, somewhere in the middle, uh, there, you know, it's a great question that you started with. Uh, when I think about it, what what I learned from business school and what I didn't learn from business school, there's, there's quite a wide range of things. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I, I kind of joke with some people that, you know, uh, I went to Cornell, but I have never heard the word power laws uh, in any of our classes, even though that's perhaps one of the most important ideas right. that as an investor uh, needs to, uh, you know, internalize uh, right. when it comes to investing. And if people usually think about power laws as more sort of like, you know, associated with venture capital. Uh, investing, but I, I think it's equally applicable, if not more so, uh, for public market investors, uh, especially if you want to be long-term investor uh, of, of, you know, uh, good, uh, you know, or, or great businesses for, like, let's, let's say, decades, not just, you know, one year, three year, five years, but like, you know, for two, three decades, right? right. So, so you can truly capitalize on the power of compounding, I'm pretty sure, which you uh, talk a lot about on your Twitter account and, and also probably, you know, on these episodes. Uh, uh, definitely. But let me stop you right there. And yeah. so uh, can, can you just describe uh, what, what a power law is? Because uh, most people who have been through uh, any any kind of math education, even even those who have gone through probability classes and so on, uh, they are most familiar with this Gaussian bell-shaped curve. That, that's that's what they learn. And they don't learn the power law distribution. Uh, they, they only learn the bell-shaped uh, curve distribution. So if you can uh, just spend one minute uh, on what, what a power law is and why is it more relevant to investing than uh, than maybe the bell, bell curve or something like that. Uh, right, right. Uh, uh, instead of like, you know, speaking in a strictly mathematical terms, I think it would be easier to kind of, you know, give you an example or uh, some examples of both normal distribution and let's say power law distribution. So right. when it comes to normal distribution, not, you know, uh, so both, Normal distribution and power law distributions, uh, we, we, we see and observe in our daily lives, uh, but in different contexts, right? So when it comes to normal distribution, like, for example, our heights, right? Uh, yeah, our heights sort of follow normal distribution. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, it, there, you, you could say that there's a 68, a, a, you know, the standard deviation of heights in any society or country or all the world. Right. Uh, you know, within one standard deviation, there's like 68% uh, people. Who, who kind of fall in that category. Right. Within two standard deviation, there's like 95% of people who fall into the category. Right. Right. And with three standard deviation, there's like 99 for 99 percentile people, uh, 99% of people who fall, 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 fall in that category. And there's no people who are like, you know, uh, 15 feet tall, right? Which would be a, quite a fat tail event, but right. there is no such people. Right. Right. So you can see that, you know, certain things like, you know, uh, uh, heights, uh, people's heights uh, follow, uh, you know, a bit of a 
normal distribution. Right. Uh, approximately, the, because the normal distribution, it goes on from, from minus infinity to plus infinity. Right. And obviously, there are no, no people who have negative heights and so on. Right. So, so approximately a normal distribution. Right, that's true. That's absolutely true. Right. Uh, but, but when it comes to power law distribution, you know, uh, we, we see it on uh, on things like wealth, in, th- in things like, you know, uh, the, the return in public markets. Uh, so even, even you know, if, if you go to like, you know, uh, your personal personal portfolio. If you have if you have, if, you have, if you have been investing for like let's say twenty thirty years, and if you, uh, you know, just you know remained invested like for under uh, 10, 15, uh, 20 uh, businesses, there's a there's a great you know pretty significant probability that one particular business probably derives drives uh, you know fifty percent or more of your portfolio uh, size. So part of distribution basically what what it says is that you know. The, the peak or uh, something that, you know, something that is in the higher, uh, uh, you know, some, something that's probably at the top of the game in that particular niche, perhaps uh, will drive, uh, let's say, 50% of, of the total pie. And the second person or the second thing will drive, let's say, you know, maybe 25% of the total pie. And the third person will be probably another, you know, let's say 12 and a half percent. And it just goes on from there. So it's not a normal distribution like a basal card shape. It's, 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 it's very skewed with a very fat tail, you know, element, uh, of it, which is what we see in public markets. So if you look at history, uh, you know, in the last, and you can go with like last 100 years, last 50 years, last, you know, uh, 70 years, the, you know, the math kind of looks similar, like only four or five percent of, uh, public market, the public, uh, you know, companies, uh, has, uh, have driven 96% of alpha, uh, uh, excess return, uh, in, in the markets. So again, like, you know, if you, if you think about like, oh, I will buy, let's say 100 companies and, uh, you know, I'll pick, you know, 50 good companies and maybe 50 will go out of business. It usually doesn't work like that. It's, it's probably, you know, yes, maybe 50 will be in operation and 50 will go out of business. But within the 50 businesses that are in operation, only a few will basically drive the bulk of your, you know, portfolio return. So, you know, when you think about like, you know, it's an, there's a, there's a, you know, very important message, uh, in, in the power of distribution that many people want to run away from concentration. Right. That's right. And that's what, you know, you learn in business school. Like, you know, you don't want your portfolio to be overly concentrated. You know, you, you, you know, there's an opt- portfolio optimization uh, right. and your math- mathematical, you know, kind of formulas where you can utilize uh, to make sure that your portfolio are optimized and you don't suffer from concentration risk and all that. But if you th- understand and look at the history of the return distribution, what you see is basically concentration is the natural outcome. Right. You you can say, and I think what we probably should try to do is uh, concentration. We shouldn't probably use that as an input rather rather as an output. Right. So let's say if you are really bullish about a company, maybe you you don't need to put like, you know, 50, 70, 80 percent of your uh, wealth. Uh, to that company. But if that company is really, really good, actually is one of those companies that drives all the returns of your portfolio, over time, let's say 20, 30 years, that, you know, a particular company will become, even if it's like 10% of your portfolio today, will probably become like, you know, 90, 
more than 90% of your portfolio of, of total portfolio in 20, 30 years time. Like I, 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 you know, I saw an example recently, like, you know, if, if like in 1997, uh, if you had like, you know, uh, like 4% of your in, uh, portfolio in Amazon and 96% is in S&P 500, uh, today that portfolio, and, and you did nothing at all, like nothing, you just, you know, uh, let it be there. Like 25 years later, like, you know, yeah, 25 years later today, your portfolio would be like, you know, uh, 91% Amazon and 9% S&P 500, right? And this is, again, because of the compounding, because of the power law distribution, Amazon has grown, like, at, you know, 30% CAGR rate, where where S&P 500 has grown as at a, like, 5 6%, 6% CAGR rate over the last, you know, 20, 25 years. Right. Uh, so it's, that is such an amazing yeah. statistic. You know, you, you start with Amazon at 4% of the portfolio and right. then 96% of the portfolio is S&P 500. But then you just right. wait for a long period of time without doing anything. And then now Amazon is suddenly 90, uh, what was it, 90, 96%? 91%. 91%, 91% of the portfolio. And from 4%, it's gone to 91%. And it's it's not because the S&P 500 has, has not done well or anything like that. The S&P 500 right. has also grown in that period but amazon has just grown so much faster that it now completely dominates and that's why you're saying that concentration should emerge as an output and it it shouldn't emerge uh, it it shouldn't be input right 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 you know i think i i I think this was joel greenback if i remember correctly who said like uh or maybe it would be it, it could be someone else who said like you know i i uh, uh, if, if, if it's a great compounder, I don't need, uh, you know, too much in my portfolio. I can just own a little and it will emerge as, as this big compounder later. And if it's not a big compounder, I don't want too much of it today. Right. So, right? so, so you know, that's the thing, you know, I, I think that's an important distinction, uh, which I, 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 frankly speaking, I have learned uh, after graduating from Cornell, I would say that, uh, you know, we shouldn't fear of, we shouldn't be afraid of concentration. We should, you know, embrace concentration as an output, not as an input, right? And, and that's, 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 a, and, and, and it's, it's harder for, let's say, someone like, uh, it's easier, let's say, for an individual investor to embrace concentration. And it's much harder, uh, to embrace concentration as a, as a, professional investor or as, 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 as someone who manages other people's money. Uh, right. Because, because you have automatic risk controls and things like that, that come into play. Exactly. And like, think about when your portfolio is 90% Amazon, right. Uh, and uh, obviously a single stocks, uh, you know, uh, volatility is significantly higher. Right. Uh, compared to the overall market's volatility. Right. So if you're, you know, investor base, or the of the people who are you know of whom you are managing money, if they're not completely aligned to what you are doing and you know how you are managing the money, the fact about and 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 understand these nuances about concentration as an output and all that, uh, then that 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 can be a you know huge stressor uh, on on your uh, portfolio management and on your overall life, right? So I I, I think I uh, it's easier to embrace this. Like you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of professional fund managers and professional managers understand these nuances, but even understanding, you know, is not enough because they can't really, you know, because the system, let's say, they're part of, uh, uh, hinders them uh, to kind of follow uh, this, you know, simple, uh, you know, simple, you know, uh, like operational truths. 
because you know there are other things that they also have to manage for their own business. That's, and I think you can probably get into that, like uh, you know how you invest and how you manage your business can be, uh, you know, can be can, can sometimes at at, at, at be at, at can be at odds, right? Definitely. Uh, right and 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 when th- those things come into uh you know play usually you know your business wins like you, know, you want to protect your business right right uh, so so yeah you know and again this is not like i'm not criticizing anybody it's just a you know blunt reality that i think everyone should just no no criticize everybody <laughs> yeah right <laughs> So yeah, I, I I think I should I I'm talking too much about uh, you know what I have la- have not learned. Maybe I should also talk about what I have learned from business school. I think one of the things uh, I, I I see from uh, let's say uh, you know just observing a lot of Twitter interactions, a lot of people don't like the idea of modeling businesses, right? Uh, like in, for example, these Excel files and all that, and they there's a lot of truth to that. Like I, you know, one of the, uh, I, I would say one of the uh, reminders that I kind of, you know, uh, make sure that I, I, I'm reminding every now and then to myself is uh, don't take your models too seriously. Right. Right. Uh, but it's, it's, it, there's a, there's a, you know, important nuance here. One is I think the people who are great investors, they don't need to model. They, you know, they read the 10K. And they talk to probably a couple of people and they understand that, you know, the truths of that business pretty quickly. They don't need an Excel file. They don't need a model uh, to kind of, you know, get to those, you know, deeper truths uh, of that particular business. But if you're starting today or if you are, if you've been around only for, you know, a few years or you haven't really, uh, you know, been through a different market cycles, you know, you will not be able to get to the truths uh, in an instant. Right. So for, for someone like me, you know, I, 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 I kind of, you know, say that, yes, I use model and yes, I have learned this from business school and I am happy that I learned it from business school uh, because I can't get out of modeling from day one. Right. So that's like a big right. block to learn the ABCs. Right. So the fundamentals and, of how to model a business. Right, right, right. It, right. it really helps me visualize what this business is about, right? How, how, how things are kind of moving uh, from one place to another when, uh, let's say, uh, uh, you, know, let's, you know, you can see the operating leverage, you know, when the business is growing and when you are kind of projecting and forecasting this business will go from here to there, right? So uh, a lot of this, you know, kind of, you know, uh, numerical aspects may, may not be intuitive for, uh, young analysts or young investors, and it takes time and reputation uh, to kind of you know uh, uh, get to the, get to these uh, uh, truths uh, intuitively. Uh, and but it requires a lot of you know uh, reputations and patience over over multiple years or maybe decades. Absolutely, uh, that that's such a great point. You know, a lot of people have have told me, you know, uh, Warren Buffett doesn't do all this math, and Warren Buffett right, doesn't have a computer on top of his. Yeah, exactly. So, so Warren Buffett can remember uh, a forty-year-old balance sheet exactly, <laughs> and uh, and Warren Buffett can calculate, uh, you know, IRRs in in his head. Exactly. I, I can't do that. Yeah, so, no, I'm so, I can't either. so so I need I need some tool 
to help me um, arrive at these uh, truths about a business that Warren Buffett can just see just just by reading the 10k right yes and and that that, that is such a great point so uh, it 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 doesn't matter um you know where you you start from what, what matters is how you build the knowledge that you need uh, to to be able to invest into a business to understand a business and so on if building that knowledge requires you to just read the 10k and you're able to get that knowledge that's great but if it requires you to build some models and play with them to try and understand you know how will several variables affect um, how how will revenue growth for example uh, uh, or return on invested capital or something like that uh, how how will this particular variable uh, affect the future of the business and so on if if i need a model to try and become familiar with that, that that's that's great too i mean in anything that helps build understanding um right. that, that that's the core thing you have to know what you own and you have to understand what you own how you come to that understanding if you need excel you need excel if you if you just need a 10k you need a 10k that that's not so important right right the only thing i i would uh you know probably caution people i i i i sense a lot of people like you know disparage modeling not because they think it's it's worthless but because actually they're not good at it they don't know how to do it that's probably not a great reason or rationale to disparage something right if i say hey i i don't like this let's say i i don't like python because uh if the reason is because i actually don't know how to you know code in python then yes that that's not a fair criticism right right uh, so there's you know i i i accept a lot of criticism to modeling one of the you know uh, criticism that i really really accept is unfortunately when you model a business and when you kind of you know, do it in excel it becomes this kind of beautiful you know numerical based thing and a lot of people have a tendency uh, to fall in love with it like they start believing in it what whatever they are saying right uh, uh, and and uh, and that's that's probably uh, a, a very pernicious impact of uh kind of you know putting it in excel and like looking at it and 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 like you know and thinking that you you will be able to uh forecast the future you aren't you can't forecast the future uh but you know and that's why I kind of you know uh, basically focus on just doing this reverse you know discounted cash flow method in, a, in a, just to figure out what's really embedded in the stock price what's really embedded in in the market right uh i i don't i don't quite believe on my ability to forecast what's going to be uh, uh you know uh the fundamental let's say projections like revenues or or profits or free cash flow 5 years 10 years down the line for most businesses yes some businesses are more easier to probably forecast than other businesses uh uh but yeah but you know it's it's a degree uh, not that you know every business is equally difficult uh, but right. i would say the number of businesses uh, which are easier to forecast are probably not a very huge list right it's probably a short list exactly and every model is going to come with a with a margin of error and for some businesses inherently uh, because they are just young businesses or growing very fast or at an early right. stage or for whatever yes. reason the margin of error is higher for those businesses for sure uh, uh, absolutely and you mentioned this thing about reverse dcfs and i i really want to touch upon that because uh, i i've seen um you know a, a few analyst reports and and things like that but i i don't think i've seen too many examples of people actually using reverse dcfs in their uh, valuation uh, uh, most of the models that i see on on 
websites like seeking alpha and motley fool and things like that at the most um, they, there are two approaches either they do a dcf or if not dcf they just forecast some future cash flow and slap a multiple on top of it right these are the two approaches that i see but you in your analysis if you if you take any mbi deep dives um uh, any any of the deep dives you actually do a reverse dcf so is is that uh, common uh, like did you learn that at mba um, at at cornell or did you learn that uh, ha, ha, uh, by by reading michael moberson and others uh, outside of the mba Right, it's not. I I didn't learn it from MBA. I I, I learned it from Michael Morrison. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, yes, I think you know. Uh, again, uh, a lot of people think. Uh, you know, when, when they think about uh, expectation investing or reverse uh, DCF, uh, people. You know, I think there's. It's widely accepted that valuation is difficult. Like, and it's not easy to value a business, right? Uh, people understand that, and people understand it. It's it's kind of you know, an more of an art than science. Uh, but I think that acknowledgement gets diminished when it comes to reverse DCF. People think it's easy to do reverse DCF. It's easy to figure out what's embedded in the stock price. It's actually not okay. easy. Okay, so, so I'm going to stop you there one uh, for for a minute because there's a question in the chat that says, "What what is reverse DCF?" Uh, right. So let me just quickly explain what a reverse DCF yeah. is. Yeah. So so a normal DCF is you predict the future cash flows of this business so you have a business you want to assign a valuation to it how much is this business worth so you try to predict its future cash flows and then you discount those cash flows to the present using some discount rate so for example if you have a 10% discount rate you take the uh, year 1 cash flows and divide that by 1.1 and then you take the year 2 cash flows and divide that by 1.1 squared and so on and then you add these values up and you get a particular value and that's your uh, valuation for the business uh, what a reverse dcf does is it says okay um, i don't really know uh, what what the future cash flows to be but what i know is the market price of the business so what i will do is i will try to take the market price of the business which i know right now and then i will say okay suppose i have to get a 10% return from this business then what do the future cash flows have to be in order for me to get that 10% from the business if i pay the current market price so it kind of turns the dcf on its head because we are not predicting the cash flows and then trying to arrive at a price that we want to pay we are taking the market price and then trying to arrive at the cash flows to try and see whether okay is the market the market is pricing in these kinds of cash flows for the for the business do i think those cash flows are reasonable or not is the market uh, o- o- overly enthusiastic about this business or is the market overly pessimistic about this business so i will learn what i can from the market price so that that's a reverse dcf exactly now that's very well explained and and the and the important thing to kind of you know uh, notice here although you, you know what i uh, you know I, i i kind of explain it like this like you know if you think about a pyramid like and and let's at the top of the pyramid you have 
like the most difficult. Let's say, you know, this pyramid is about just valuation. Like if say it's a valuation in a pyramid, and at the peak, the peak, it, the, there's you know, it, you you have the most difficult process, and the most difficult process is basically just you know normal DCF. Right, because you are basically trying to uh, forecast, uh, you know, revenues and cash flows and and you know uh, and profits in the future, like five, ten years on the line, and then you also are slapping some terminal growth or like terminal multiple uh, to come up with a fair value uh, right. of that or intrinsic value of that business. Now that's the most difficult way uh, to to value value a business, and I think that's probably the most common way uh, to do it. Uh, the reverse DCF. You know, you know, just sits behind that difficulty. It's it's not the you know it's not at the bottom, right? Uh, but you know, it's still like you know, it just you know simplifies a few things, right? So you are not uh, trying to completely you know you are not imposing your uh, views fully right. uh, in the future cash flows projections or revenue projections. But you are still you will still impose some of your views. Uh, like because you still you know because market doesn't tell you explicitly uh, what's the you know top line numbers ten years from now or five years from now what's the margins right. or you know what, what the capital intensity so there is still some ways you still have to study the business you still have to understand the you know different uh, dynamics uh, uh, or competitive intensity uh, of the industry and all that and then kind of decide. Uh, and, and then kind of build, you know, sort of a model, uh, which I do to kind of figure out, uh, what, what, what it looks like, let's say five, 10 years from now. And, and then so you still have to use some, I guess, terminal, uh, growth or, uh, you know, terminal multiple. But even, even then, like, you know, those terminal multiples or growth is a function of, uh, you know, what's the growth runway? Let's say if you are slapping a multiple in 2025 or 2030, you still, you know, uh, that multiple depends on what sort of runway le- is left in that business five, 10 years from now, right? Right, and exactly. Like what's, what's the growth runway from 2030 to 2040, right? And then it also depends on interest rates in 2030. And now right. we obviously have no clue what's interest is going to be in 2030, right? And then uh, the competitive intensity and all that, like so, it's 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 difficult thing, right? So, and I, I think one of the one of my, my own criticisms for Warren Buffett is, uh, it's not, uh, you know, he just sound makes it sound all too easy. Uh, Riz, I didn't think uh, you didn't get the memo. We we don't criticize Warren Buffett on this show. <laughs> no, I didn't. I did not get that memo. That's true. You know, but yeah, I'm I'm probably as big a uh, fan as uh, any of this uh, any of the people are in the show, but. Uh, I, I, you know, once I kind of, you know, did this for a living, started doing this for a living, uh, I, I came to this humble conclusion that, uh, yes, pro- yeah, I, we know, we know for a fact that Mr. Buffett is perhaps way smarter than any of us are, are here, uh, but also he has, uh, this penchant, uh, to, you know, make things, uh, Sounds so simple, which probably is simple for him, but unfortunately not for the rest of us, right? Uh, so yeah, that's that's the uh, I, I guess the gist of it uh, when it comes to reverse DCF. Right, exactly. the 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 key thing that you said in in this reverse DCF is there there are too many variables, right? So. Uh, when when you try to value a company, there are so many variables. What, what are the what's the future revenue growth going to be? Uh, what, what, how much capex is going to be needed to fund right. that revenue growth? So what what is free cash flow going to be? Uh, what what are margins going to look like? Operating margins are they going to improve or are they going to become worse? And th- there are so many variables here. The thing is with a reverse DCF, 
you cannot solve for all the variables. You can solve for only one variable. And Professor Aswat Damathuran, whom we had on the show, he has this very nice way of looking at a reverse DCF. He says, okay, I can solve for only one variable. So for example, he gave the example of Tesla. He was trying to value Tesla. And he said, okay, look, I'm reasonably confident in my prediction of the future revenues for Tesla. I'm reasonably confident in my prediction of uh, how much future capital is going to be required uh, at Tesla and, and all these things. But the one thing that I am not confident uh, or the, the one variable where I have the maximum amount of uncertainty is in the operating margins. So I don't know what the operating margins at Tesla are going to be. So when I do a reverse DCF, what I'm going to do is I'm going to solve for the operating margins. So the reverse DCF can be used to solve for only one thing because it's only you have only one data point, the market price. And so what you do is you solve for the one variable that is most uncertain to you. And then once you get that variable, suppose uh, you, you solve for the operating margins and then you you, uh, you get to the conclusion that, okay, uh, assuming that the revenue and everything else that I modeled is correct, the market thinks that the operating margin is going to be 75% or something like that. Now, I don't think the operating margins are going to be 75%. So I think this company is overvalued and so I'm not going to buy it, right? So right. pick the one variable that is hardest for you to quantify and then solve for that one variable using the reverse DCF. This I learned from Aswad Damodaran and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a generally very useful tip for people who are trying yeah, to use no. reverse DCFs. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very helpful. Uh, I, I I know I think one of the benefits of kind of doing reverse DCF is this. I think it it kind of uh, allows you to start your modeling with humility, right? That you you know that uh, you, you are not trying to value this business. You are not trying to say whether you know uh, like you know like for example that the. the common thing to say like you know hey, it's very common like, everybody says this, like, oh, this business is uh undervalued by 20 percent 30 percent 50 percent like or or this can be five bagger 10 baggers in five years 10 years 15 years right so when you are saying the, when you are stating those sentences you are basically saying you know how to value that business you know how what the future is going to be for for that businesses at least maybe some range right like right do you think that uh, business is undervalued by 20 to 30 percent so you're pro probably providing some range but even even that is probably not very common usually you know if you look at any wall street model or wall street like you know target price they they have pretty much a like single number right like this the value of uh, this business is like you know 200 dollar now it's trading at 150 dollar so there's like you know this person is an upside left uh from the current level so that's right. how that's the probably most common approach right. uh but i think when you start with a, a reverse ccf uh it, it starts with humility that you actually don't know exactly not. exactly right? so uh, you are just trying to figure out i think you know even if you are I'm, i know a lot of people approach reverse ccf differently it's not all everyone not you know just like any valuation i think not everyone approaches uh, uh you know uh, uh, like evaluating a company in, in a similar manner uh but i think when you do reverse no matter how are you are doing it uh just because you are doing it i think it, it allows you to be humble uh, and just think about it, if you are starting a business for the first and it's a, I, I actually haven't started tesla but let's say i start starting tesla tomorrow uh i don't think i'll be able to impose my 
opinion on Tesla, like in a couple of weeks, right? It's a complicated business, you know, it's a huge business, right? So uh, for me to say, I know how to, like, I know what Tesla is worth in like two weeks, that's probably a bit of a, you know, chutzpah on my behalf, right? right. A bit of arrogance on my behalf. Uh, so I, I would, I, I'm far more comfortable to say, you know what, uh, market is saying Tesla is, let's say, a trillion dollar, you know, market cap. Uh, and let's try to figure out, you know, as, let's say, as, uh, uh, Professor Damodaran said, uh, let's say, you know, what's the operating margin that I need to believe or, or someone can say, you know what, uh, I don't think, an, or let's say, an, a, a car could have, like, you know, I, I have a fair amount of, uh, uh, confidence that it, it can only be, let's say 20, 30% operating margin business, right? right. And, uh, I would rather need to know, uh, what sort of top line. Uh, do I need to believe? And if let's say uh, I look at the starting top line in 2030, and I, you know, I think it's it's probably easier to forecast uh, the total OEM market uh, like globally because that doesn't grow at like 20% rate every year. Right. It grows at a, in a kind of a probably low single digit rate or maybe even lower. Sure. Uh, so so then you can see what the, what percentage of market share you need to assume for Tesla, right? So there are many different ways to do it, but again, I, 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 I wouldn't say there's only one right approach here, but I think that's just, just because of the fact that you are starting to, uh, like starting from like a reverse DCF approach, uh, that may have a higher chance, uh, to keep you grounded. Right. Exactly. That That's, that's such a great, great point because you, on the one variable, uh, that, that is most uncertain to you, you actually defer to the market, so uh, so that 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 is an act of humility, and that may keep you grounded. That's such a great point. Uh, so so there there was one other question, which is uh, so for for those of us who who did not go to Cornell and do an MBA, are there any books on learning how to model uh, a business? Yeah. So. Uh... Uh, learning a model, I think, you know, Professor Damodar and he's perhaps the first name that comes to, uh, most people's mind and my mind as well. Like, I think, you know, most of his stuff is public, right? Right. Uh, I remember, like, and even, even when I was at Cornell, I remember, uh, you know, spending hours on kind of, you know, uh, going through some of his old posts, like, you know, how to, uh, treat stock-based compensation or how to think about, you know, leases and all that, right? I remember spending a lot of time on his website, right? And right. I think most people, you know, most people working on Wall Street probably have done so at some point. Uh, so that's, that's for how, and everything is free. Like, you know, he has a lot of lectures on YouTube. He has a lot of, you know, articles and, 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 uh, and, and, and think pieces on, on many different topics, on valuation topics. Right. Uh, exactly. Cell files are, on, are, are available in public, right? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind when it comes to modeling, just, you know, the kind of, you know, nuts and bolts of how to do, uh, right. but more from like, you know, if you, uh, it's not like, there are probably more than a hundred thousand people who know how to model businesses, right. And you know, how, how to operate in Excel and all that. Uh, but probably a very few, you know, a lot lower number of people know, uh, how to like, you know, think properly, how to assess a business. Uh, and and express that assessment in a in a in a numerical format. That's probably you know a lot lower number. So I think in addition to let's say Professor Damodaran, I think I would also encourage people to uh, 
go through two books. Uh, the one is uh, Super Forecasting. Uh, oh, Phil Tetlock. Yeah, Phil, Phil Tetlock okay. is an amazing book. Uh, again, something that I, I have learned uh, after that book that I actually cannot forecast, right? So, uh, so you, you need to be humble, right? Right. Uh, humility has to kind of, you know, uh, revert through your investing process because it's the world is so uncertain that forecasting is actually inherently a uh, a dangerous profession right. uh, to pursue, right? So, so that's that's another book to like you know probably more sort of like you know uh, philosophical bedrock, right? Uh, in terms of how to think in for, uh, think about forecasting, and there's this also that you know Michael Mabusin's, uh expectations investing is also one of the oh yeah absolutely. Policy. So almost every episode uh, on on Colin on uh, of money concepts, uh, I, I I plug this this book, uh, expectations <laughs> investing. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I also think the the McKinsey book on valuation is very good. Um, right. So that right. that's that's also a good way to learn how to model businesses. But what what I would say is, you know, there, there's a lot of theory out there. You can go and keep reading, um, you know, uh, Aswadhamodaran's website, and you you you'll see a, a lot of theory. You can take his course and so on. But I, I find that one way to cut through all this theory and to really understand how to model businesses is to just go and read the spreadsheets. So uh, just download the spreadsheets, open it in Excel, uh, because Aswadhamadharan makes all his spreadsheets available. Just go see how various things are calculated, you know, what, what depends on what and so on. In in one hour or so, if you just study uh, the model for Facebook or some company like that, you can get so much of knowledge in that one hour. Uh, uh, you know, just by going through the spreadsheet instead of going through Aswad Damodaran's whole course or reading books right. or things like that. Uh, so it's a, it's a much faster way and more uh, for, for some people, it's more hands on and more fun way to learn how, how to model businesses. Yeah, you know what? I, I, that reminds me of something that I wanted to mention when you asked me uh, the first question uh, about, you know, uh, the difference between people who went who, go to this business school and the people who basically have to learn on their own. I think the people who need to are who kind of learned on their own have one incredible advantage uh, over, over the you know, business school students. Uh, business school students are fed like, you know, by their professors and uh, different theories and all that. Something that's been kind of, you know, discussed and, and studied and, and, and uh, the theories. And then it's, it's, Many business school students, I think I, would, I, I, I can say probably super majority of business school students do not think from first principles or, you know, or do not think, do not feel the necessity right. to think first principles because, you know, uh, this must be true because professor is saying this, right? Uh, but if you are, let's say, learning on your own, if you are not from a business background, uh, if you, let's say if you studied, you know, uh, physics or, or math, and you are trying to uh, understand these valuation concepts and all that. Like, you know, you, you, you are probably much more prone to think from first principles perspective. And I think, you know, when I read many of your threads, uh, and I, when I later, you know, got to know that you are actually not from business background, and I kind of, you know, made that connection that, uh, it, it, it is perhaps an advantage for someone like you. Because you are not kind of, you know, uh, you know, your mind is not muddled with all these kind of, you know, uh, 
normal distribution and like you know traditional uh you know risk uh which is basically you know risk is basically it's it's still true like you know if you go to wall street a risk is measured by standard deviation right and standard deviation by default is assumes uh you know uh normal distribution which is we know that doesn't uh it's not true in market like market doesn't follow normal distribution uh so i think you are much more uh are anyone who starts let's say who's, who's who's starting to get into business and trying to understand how things work uh they have this chance to think from first principles right right uh like sometimes you like, you know i was talking to someone recently uh, uh like you know she was talking about crypto uh and uh, and 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 basically uh she was saying that you know everything is kind of belief like it doesn't have you know uh, there's no science to valuation like it has it, it is a bit of belief and i said yes that's true but it, the answer is yes and no uh like for example if all of us if all of us start saying uh i think apple is worth zero like apple you know apple's market cap is right now i think 2.7 trillion or something like that uh i think it's 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 worth nothing if we all start believing the shareholders all the investors start believing that okay will apple will apple stock be zero the answer is no it's not going to be zero because you know if if we start selling will apple will start buying those shares from us right uh so you know in in some and again that's not true it, it's it's kind of a degree uh apple can do that but if your business because apple has a lot of free cash flow it's a problem if all the customers saying wouldn't want to buy iphones Right. That's a problem. A lot bigger problem for Apple than let's investors saying, you know what, Apple is worth zero. Or I don't think it's worth anything. Uh, well, you can say that, and you can sell. And if everybody starts selling, well, there would probably, I know, Warren Buffett and, and and Tim Cook will probably buy all the shares from you uh, if it's you know if it just keeps going down. Uh, so, but again, there are a lot of businesses who don't have free cash flow, who don't have like you know. Uh, if everybody say if everybody starts saying it's worth zero it can actually be zero that's right. possible right so uh, so there's it's a degree you know it's it's not a, a, a yes no answer a black and white answer uh, uh so, so yeah you know but, but if you're starting from zero you will you will think from, about these questions you will think from first principles what happens if you know market goes down what happens if uh it uh, you know the stock experiences 50 80% drawdown but the business uh, doesn't experience such uh, volatility right right so, I, exactly uh, so yes. so the the whole uh, the, the point that you are making here is that apple has intrinsic value and the, the intrinsic value is uh, comes from the fact that they are able to get free cash flow by selling iphones or ma- making profit and and so on so right. so apple cannot be worth zero or or the stock cannot go to zero or even even if the stock market were to shut down you know if you own some shares of apple you will still keep getting a dividend every year uh, from apple because you own those shares and because you keep getting that dividend every year and because apple keeps making this profit every year that that dividend has to be worth something exactly so that that is the the whole idea behind intrinsic value is you know forget about the markets you you don't really care about the markets if you buy the stock and then you hold it forever you never sell it so you you don't care what the markets do because you're not going to sell it so just the cash that is generated by the business 
which they will eventually distribute to you because you are the owner of the business. That should be enough to justify the purchase price that you paid for the business. So, so you shouldn't care about selling to your shares tomorrow at a higher price or something like that, because that would qualify as speculation. Whereas if you invest purely based on the dividends that you are going to get in the future from this company, that, that is investing based on, uh, that's not speculation, that is investing. Right. And, and that's a very first principles idea, as, as, as you said. Exactly. Absolutely. For sure. Exactly. So, so I want to ask you another question, which is, okay, so you do these wonderful deep dives, right? For a, uh, so, so you take about a month to analyze the company. And so uh, let, let's say, um, you know, this, this Monday, you're going to be publishing uh, a, a report on, on Constellation uh, software, right? Right. Right. So let, let's say you publish the, the report on Monday. And then next month, you, you're going to take another company, right? Right. Okay. So, do you know what company that is? Actually, it's not a company. I'm. I'm actually for the first time. I'm going to cover uh, Ethereum. Uh, so. Oh. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's not a company. Oh. Okay. So. So this this question does not apply to that. Then. Okay. So suppose you had a company that you were going to. So what yeah. I'm I'm interested in is okay. You you just publish a report about a company to your newsletter subscribers, and then you have a month. And then right. in this one month, you're going to research some other company uh, and then you're going to write about it and prepare this report. So what exactly happens in this one month? What, what are the things you look at? Uh, what, what does one month of research into a company look like yeah. from your standpoint? What, what are the various things you do? Who are the people you talk to? How, how do you get this information about the company and how do you how much time do you spend on various things and so on? Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, researching uh, any business uh, from individual investors or even I would say most institutional investors perspective, uh, it, it's it's not quite rocket science. So I, I do a lot of the basics that, uh, you know, many people do. Uh, but then again, you know, <laughs> basics are not necessarily followed by everyone. But I, I, you know, I'd say a lot of a lot of people, uh, you know, do go through it's the public filings, which I, which is the first thing I kind of you know start with my research process. So public filings as in 10K annual report. Uh, so I, I would I would read the latest annual report. I would read the latest, uh, you know, uh, transcripts, quarterly, uh, you know, uh, analyst uh, quarterly earnings call transcript. Uh, and and many times I would not just read one. I would probably read you know. Uh, three, four, or maybe, right. you know, uh, if I knew, uh, that I, I, you know, there's interesting ideas or interesting points, uh, mentioned by management in, let's say, uh, uh, in a call three years ago, then I would go and read that, right? Right. Uh, uh, so, so yeah, it always starts from the 10K, then we report and the transcripts, recent transcripts. Uh, after I kind of do that, I have like some idea. Uh, what 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 kind of questions I have? What I don't understand? Uh, and like a reasonable idea about what the business is about, right? How right. the business money and all that. And then basically I start building a shell of a model, right? Okay. So uh, it's just the historical numbers. Like you know, I kind of design how I would 
like you know build the model like you know what's the revenue drivers how would i like you know it's not like you know uh i i like i'm not necessarily just you know uh like when i'm forecasting revenue let's say three years four years five years ten years down the line i'm just not saying oh last year grew by 20 percent next year it's going to be 20 percent then it's going to be 30 percent right it's usually like your, your top line is driven by some drivers right so for example right. in my own business like you know i have like you know it's it's PEP multiplied by Q, right? So P is basically the price I charge for uh, each subscription, and the Q is basically the number of subscribers, right? Uh, sure. When you multiply those two, you have you have revenue, right? right? Uh, so similar things, like I, I try to look for drivers uh, for for a company's revenue, and so I kind of build that shell of that model, right? And uh, again, like you know, the model kind of helps me uh, visualize the business. Uh, and, and things like that, and then basically, since again, like you know, since this is a reverse UCF, I know the market price is trading at. Uh, so I also kind of you know finish the model in terms of like the what what sort of uh, expectations that needs to be implied there, and and once I kind of go through these basic steps, uh, I, I didn't basically start talking to people, right? So, okay. Uh, or, or so in this uh, basic steps, you've read, you've already read the 10K, you've read a bunch of 10Qs and yes. you have a skeleton of the model and right. you, you know what are the key drivers of the business. So if, if, you, if a business has revenues, what are the different segments it has maybe? And um, if, if um, so, so for example, if it's, if it's some kind of subscription business, then it's mm-hmm. going to be based on how many subscribers they have, what is the average revenue per user, things like that. Right. So you have the broad uh, skeleton of the model. All that, yes. So uh, all, all, all these drivers, and basically, I also like start jotting questions when I'm like reading and when I'm like you know uh, building these models. Right. I start jotting questions that uh, like you know I don't understand this driver. Let's say like I don't know uh, why this particular driver is so volatile. It's right. going to and then like it's going down. Like I, I don't quite get it. Like right. what's really behind this driver, right? So I'll probably jot down like all these questions and then uh, thanks to Twitter, uh, you know, uh, people talk, people are talking about stocks all the time. Right? Right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I really haven't followed uh, Constellation closely before, let's say, you know, last one month. Uh, but I, I have some idea, like who are the people who are kind of following this company, like who are the people who are tweeting about this company uh, and all that. And you can also search, right, by ticker and all that. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I, I kind of reach out to them as from time to time uh, uh, and, and like, you know, uh, ask them uh, whether they understand these particular aspects, uh, you know, uh, better than I do. Uh, right. And in many cases, what happens is like, you know, uh, they would tell you like, oh, you know, yes, this, you know, uh, the CEO explained this aspect like in 2017. Right. Right. Obviously, I didn't go back to 2017 earnings transcript like within just one month. It's not possible to read like, you know, 50 transcripts. Right. So uh, but, you know, sometimes people will guide you uh, to right. go back and kind of, you know, read that. So if they uh, tell you right. to go and read that 2017 transcript, you you go and read that. Right. Exactly. So. OK. That's like, and, many, and also, like, you know, like things are like there are a lot of things like Substack. Uh, you know, or any other blogs where, you know, you can just Google and find them. Like if you were right. talking about, uh, you know, uh, like, so I started reading other people's work. 
Okay. Right, so after I kind of go through the basic steps, I kind of, you know, get into other people's work and then reach out to people, asking right. them questions, like, you know, what, what do they think about this and that? Uh, and then I kind of, you know, uh, you know, start writing. And I think it's in the writing where I kind of, you know, uh, think it through. Like, you know, sometimes you think you understand. Right. Uh, when you were listening, like if I ask you to explain something anywhere, you start talking and, and yes, I intuitively, I, it feels like, yeah, I get it. I get what he's talking about. But if you then ask me, why didn't you write it down? Then it, then I will truly understand whether I actually understood what you talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Writing is, is a great aid to clarify your own thinking. Exactly. Uh, I think Charlie Munger, you know, Buffett recently wrote uh, in his latest letter that, you know, Munger calls it orangutan, uh, you know, orangutan effect. Right. Like even if you were talking to a monkey or orangutan, like, you know, uh, that the, re- the person in the receiver end may not care or understand what you're talking about. But the very act of speaking, the very act of writing, right, right. to explain something will help you. Clarify your own thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also really love the, the order in which you approach these things because you first go and read the source material, the, the 10Ks and right. the 10Qs and things like that. So, And then you go look at what other people have said about the company instead of doing it the other way around. Because if you do it the other way around, you could be biased by what they yeah. say about the company. And then when you read the 10K or 10Q, you might be sort of um, uh, pushed in that direction of thinking. But so I, I really like the fact that you, you go and read the 10Ks and 10Qs first and then form your own opinions and then go and look at what others have said about the company and so on. I don't necessarily form my own opinion even by then, but I have some idea. Like which, right. let's say, uh, I, I have some idea which way I'm leading, what sort of questions I have, right, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, and, but you would have to be right. Like, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is... Uh, there are a lot more content out there where, uh, you know, people are bullish about this company. Like, you know, if you are bearish about a particular company, you are a lot less incentivized to write about that company unless you are like, you know, charting that stock. Right. Right. And even then people are kind of suspicious, like, oh, you, know, you are sure that's why you are writing negative about this particular company. Like there's a lot of like, you know, uh, I, I, I think, you know, mismatch of uh, perception and incentives and all that. So absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Right. So it's, it's a lot harder to find actual negative content, right? Uh, right. Positive content, right? So you can probably find positive content about almost any company, even the frauds, right? Uh, but like, you know, to find negative, you know, and obviously, you know, uh, if it's a good company, right, uh, it's even harder to find criticism, right? right. Uh, or to find negative, uh, you know, viewpoints or opinions. Right. Uh, but obviously, you know, all sorts of opinions have some value. Like, you, know, you just don't want to be bombarded with all the positive aspects of a particular company. Right. You fall to buy everything that you come across, right? So uh, we know from history, like I said before in this call, like 4% companies drive 96% of to excess returns. So we know for, for a fact most people are not that great. Most, sorry, most companies are not that great, right? Uh, but unfortunately, we are always surrounded by all this content, where is basically everybody is bullish about everything, right? Right. Uh, so, so yeah. So it, you know, it, it's probably important to start from source content and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, read uh, some other people's opinion. Even even for my own deep dives, uh, I, I haven't spoken like in uh, explicit terms, but I think it's actually helpful. Like if you let's say construction software. Let's say if you already know the business, if you already have kind of, you know, followed that business, 
sure, go ahead and read my work. That's probably helpful for you. Like how I have studied it and how what I thought, what I found, whether I'm bullish or bearish, probably some helpful, right? Right. But you have not studied constant software at all. Like you haven't even listened. Like you, so you even you haven't even heard the name, right? And that's the first time you are reading about constant software. Uh, and if you read my work, it's possible you make it biased, right? right. So I, I think it's 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 probably helpful for anyone to start from those you know source uh documents uh, uh, yes absolutely it's always a good idea to go to the source but i think in your uh, deep dives you you do a reasonably thorough job of not just presenting your opinions but also presenting both sides of the issue like as as charlie munger said you know you 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 have to understand the other side and be able to articulate their opinions better than what they themselves can and only then you have understood the the issue completely only only if you can articulate not just your side but also the other person's side and i i think you sort of follow that in your deep dives and you you try to present a balanced perspective i try that's the important word try i try. can't claim that uh i you know i am quite successful in doing so because nobody is everyone we all are biased individuals right so and that's part part of, part of the reason why i explicitly mentioned if i own that stock right so uh, because i think that's an important information for for the readers uh, even if i'm let's say you know i presenting things in a balanced way whatever right you know as as the saying goes don't tell me what you think don't, tell me what's in your portfolio right so uh, so i think you know it's helpful uh for the readers even like you know it's up to them to judge whether i was being impartial or that i was being biased uh i i do think uh when i own a company when i own a stock i i, I can't claim that i am completely unbiased i i think it's impossible to be unbiased uh right. when you actually own a stock right uh there is a, some some level of uh biases that that certainly like i i can't claim Uh, you know, human biases are prevalent, and then with, with a straight face, I can't claim that it doesn't affect me because I'm, I know I'm human. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, if you claim that you know human biases are prevalent and then it doesn't affect you, then the only conclusion is you're not human. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. 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 Very true. Absolutely. So, so I have one one more question about your your newsletter. So, uh, so. so we we have this in in your analysis of trupanian and other uh, subscription like businesses there is this notion of steady state in a business right so um, uh, i think in in the case of trupanian they call it nirvana or something like that mm-hmm. uh, so uh, I, i think now they changed the name they they now call it trutopia or some, something like that yeah. but basically yeah. it's the state where um, the new subscribers who are coming in is equal to the churn uh, due to the existing subscribers so the total number of subscribers doesn't change with time mm-hmm. so so you you always whenever you have a subscription business like mbi deep dive some some subscribers are going to be churning out every every month yeah. or every year and yeah. new, new subscribers are going to come in to to replace that churn and if the two uh, are approximately equal to each other then you, your business has reached sort of steady state right So uh, I have a question for you with MBI deep dives. Mm-hmm. What what do you think uh, the steady state is? What what will you be happy with? Like 
if if you have 10000 subscribers are you are you happy if you have uh, 20000 subscribers what do you think the steady state is for mbi deep dives and how long do you think it will take to get there right so i think that i think i i mentioned it in the very very beginning of this call like i operate with low expectation right but there's one other you know phrase that i didn't include there i operate in low expectation and high ambition right so uh, but there's a fine line like if it, you know it almost sounds like oxymoron when you say that you have low expectation but you also say i have high ambition right but i think it's a, it's a fine balance that you know you kind of have to maintain uh, because if you become too content about your life then you may not strive for growth right going forward in your own life right so and i, I don't think people want that people want uh, a sense of growth it doesn't have to be uh in in concrete cold hard numbers uh it's just uh, I, the way i kind of think about growth uh, in a personal sense is basically this is a perception that you have like uh, you could you could have uh, you know sometimes you can see in numbers that you have you know you, your business has shown a lot of growth but maybe you are you just remained the analyst you were like 10 years ago you haven't grown as an analyst right, right. Uh, but yeah maybe the business has for whatever reason or a great marketer you know you have a million twitter followers or whatever and then you just businesses grew you know uh, you know along with it uh, but it maybe uh, you haven't grown uh, as an analyst or as an investor right so when i think about that like i i basically uh, think in more philosophically that i want to i, I want to uh, have high ambition to uh have that sense of growth in, in my in, in, as an investor as an analyst right uh when it comes to steady state uh i so to to kind of you know touch on your uh part of the question i'm already happy with what i have right i i did not expect uh to have more than 1600 subscribers within less than 2 years uh, when i you know uh started it right uh so i i i cannot with a straight face so, uh, you know uh claim that i'm not happy with whatever i have but it doesn't mean that you know i i you know it, 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 yeah it's, it's okay if it's if that's it that if you say uh 1600 is whatever this whatever the ceiling is i'm i'm okay I'm come on fine. man where's your high ambition so right so i want to be the, the high ambition part is <laughs> I, I want to be much better analyst and investor than I am today uh, in 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 five to ten years, right? Or maybe twenty years, thirty years. Like, you know, I never want to stop growing as an analyst, right. as an investor, right? Uh, I don't have quite a control on uh, how many subscribers I, I will have, right? Uh, because a lot of those con- you know, drivers of the number of subscribers are you know kind of based on the external factors, right? So, for example. uh what happens in the overall market like you can't tell me that if we have a lost decade let's say there is 0% return in the index and um, let's say till 2030 right i don't think that's good for my business right and i don't think I, I, it's possible i can be a much better analyst and investor uh in, in t- 10 years in 2030 and uh my business can still probably just limp forward or maybe start yes. right yes yes no. right uh because i can't decide what the my index is going to be in 10 years that's right. not in my control not in my control unfortunately right and similarly if you know the nasdaq uh you know 100 has 
grown at 20% rate over the last 10 years. It's incredible. Now, let's say if, if there's another decade of 20% growth in NASDAQ or whatever, uh, I'm sure that's a huge positive for my business. Right. Even though I have no control of uh, like what's the return going to be on NASDAQ, I, I know that's an incredibly positive uh, driving force by, like mine. Or, and I would say most newsletters out there, not just my own business uh, or business or newsletter. Right. Uh, so I, I can't really quite control those things. And uh, the truth of truth is, uh, the total addressable market for uh, for something like this is is a bit of a mystery, right? So uh, the way I kind of think about my subscribers in two segments: one is professional investors, and the other is individual investors. Right. And I think uh, uh, individual investors. Uh, and the size of the market is probably like individual investor market is probably 10x compared to like professional investors in terms of size of market. But the individual investors are can be particularly volatile in terms of their interest in right. the market. Right. Uh, so in many cases, if you are, let's say, poorly uh, in managing, uh, if, you're, if you're seeing poor returns, you may lose confidence. And you say, you know what, I'm happy with index. I don't know what to do this or how to handle these things. Uh, I, I just don't want to be, you know, focusing on this. And maybe that's right. Honestly speaking, that's probably a true and right approach for the vast majority of both individual and professional investors. And who does maybe including me? I don't know. Right. So, uh, so. It's, it's yeah, but if everybody thinks like that, nobody will subscribe to your newsletter. Right, and and actually the market will stop functioning if everybody starts thinking right. like that. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah. So, uh, and thankfully we we are all kind of arrogant enough uh, to not think like that. So, right. uh, not like all, but I would say sizable portion of the investors are arrogant enough to not think like that. Uh, anyway, so but I, I would say uh, right for for most investors, uh, a low cost index fund is kind of the best way to go for sure for but sure. not for me uh, no yeah that's the, you know it's like the uh, you know biases example right you know it's a, yeah we all understand it yes it's so hard to beat indexes are incredibly hard to beat nobody can beat it like you know 90 percent professional managers fail it but i will give it a shot yeah right right so uh yeah it's kind of ironic uh hope uh, springs eternal <laughs> exactly anyways uh so i, th- I think when it comes to professional investors, uh, uh, they are, you know, a lot less uh, volatile in terms of, let's say, churn, uh, and uh, you know, uh, that market. I don't know how big that can be, uh, but my guess is it's it's it could be the market itself, like you know, uh, probably around it. It could be like you know somewhere between five to ten thousand uh, people, uh, but there there are some you know issues here like you know just like netflix experiences you know password sharing and all that like you know one of the problems that i have in my business that in in many cases i see uh a team subscribes to my work right so i I don't want to name names but let's say a big team like i know like they have like 20 30 analysts right right but they have subscribed to my work with just one email but it i can see what the email is and i know that email goes to everyone in that like you know team hmm. so 27 people right so uh so yeah so you know there are a lot of lost revenue so maybe the it's okay you of... can name names <laughs> uh no not probably not a good business idea all right <laughs> so uh so yeah 
So, uh, but when it comes to individual investors, like I said, uh, I think that market is more volatile. Uh, when you experience something like 2020, you know, everybody's interested in stock market. Uh, like, yeah, that could be like, you know, 100,000, uh, you know, or more uh, total addressable market. But I want to emphasize on one thing. Uh, like my work is not necessarily a good fit for everyone. Like I'm saying, let's say, let's say 100,000 I'm just saying it's probably a very, you know, low estimates I'm, I'm providing the actual market. The number of people who are subscribing at least one, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, newsletter is probably already, I don't know, maybe in the, uh, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe 100,000, who knows, right? Uh, so the Wait, the number of people who are subscribing to at least one newsletter about investing or just any newsletter? No, I think uh, what I was trying to say is paid newsletters. If, I, if you say just... Uh, like you know, investing newsletter free slash pay that number is definitely crossed hundred thousand. Like oh yeah yeah uh, absolutely. Yeah. Like Packy Packy already Packy himself has like more than hundred thousand like you know sub- subscriber, but his his one is free. Uh, so I'm just talking about let's say paid ones, right? Right. Even if paid ones, I think it's probably I don't know. It could be hundred thousand even today. Uh, I so think the actual so. Num- actual number could like you know the market. It's probably starts. in the millions, I think. It's in the millions, exactly. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think um, like the work I do may not be a good product market fit for all these million, you know, million number of million. Uh, sure, of sure. Right. So it's a small subset, like who think uh, that, you know, it could be a good kind of, you know, good product market fit. They want to read my work. Right. And so I think it's, it's a, a, you know, uh, but again, like thanks to internet, even if it's a very small percentage of that sort of like big number. Uh, and like you mentioned in your thread today, that, you know, there's enormous you know, scalability uh, and uh, there's no overhead cost. It's just me. Right. So right. Uh, so that's how it can work. But I don't know. Like, and, and frankly speaking, and see, as, as long as you have low expectation. Yes. If you are starting a newsletter to be a millionaire. Yes. You deeply care about like what's your end state and all that. Uh, or if you have raised money from someone. Right. To say, you know what, I am such a great analyst. Uh, just finance me for like a year or two. I'll scale this business to be a million uh, in a dollar generating revenue in like three years. Yes, then you deeply care about. For someone like me, and I think I'm probably more, you know, it's probably more common uh, to have similar operating structure uh, as I have. Uh, that they, we don't raise like you know most newsletter authors don't raise money from outside or or, or you know. I, I don't think we are really starting newsletters to become obscenely wealthy, right? right. Or, or to you know start generating a million dollars or like you know that can be like an uh, outcome. Like Ben Thompson definitely probably makes more than a million, uh, but uh, I don't think you can start a newsletter hoping that you become Ben Thompson, right? right. Uh, so to me, it's an irrelevant question. Uh, like what's the steady state, what's the upside is, whatever it is, like, you know, uh, like whatever the low expectation I had, it already exceeded it. Uh, so I, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And I, I, I have enormous belief and confidence that as long as I grow as an analyst and an investor, uh, you know, people will come and read, like eventually it doesn't matter uh, whether they come today or tomorrow uh, or in three years or five years. Like I'm only 31, so... I have time and thankfully, hopefully, uh, you know, in, in my side uh, and I can do it for, I, I don't know, for forever, hopefully, as long as I'm intellectually capable, 
so in that case, yes, like, you know, I think I, I have confidence as long as I grow as an investor, as an analyst, uh, people will people will eventually find me. That, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. So, so I want to announce one one thing uh, before we take questions from from the callers. Uh, I'm I'm sorry that this has gone on for quite a while, uh, but but I think uh, we 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 covered a lot of ground here, and uh, I I think it was useful uh, to to listeners. So um, uh, Riz has very generously agreed to uh, give out one um, uh, subscription, one one annual uh, uh, membership. Uh, for 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 the next one year, uh, to MBI deep dives, and so uh, I, so we we are going to ask a, a little puzzle, and whoever is the first caller uh, to get the answer to this puzzle, is uh, is the guy who will get uh, is the guy or girl who who will get this um, this one year subscription to MBI deep dives. So here here's the puzzle. So imagine that there's there's this guy Bob. Um, and Bob signs up for uh, MBI Deep Dives, the, the monthly uh, subscription. So uh, what, what Bob does is at the, at the end of every month, Bob has to decide, is he going to subscribe um, uh, to the next month or is he going to just uh, quit his subscription and go away? And let's say Bob has a 95% chance of continuing and a 5% chance of quitting the subscription. So, so Bob churns with a 5% probability and with a 95% probability, he goes uh, goes to the next month. So uh, after 12 months, at, at the end of 12 months, after Bob has made 12 such decisions to either proceed or not, w- what is the probability that Bob is still a subscriber to MBI deep dives? So after, after 12 such uh, decisions, what's the probability that Bob has still not churned? That 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 is the puzzle, and whoever solves this puzzle um, is is going to so so just uh, enter the the caller queue, and uh, wh- whoever um, enters the caller queue and gives out the the right answer um, is 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 going to get this MBI deep dives one year uh, subscription. Okay, so um, I I think we are ready to take callers. So, so the next caller is uh, is Josh. Hello, Josh. Yeah. Uh, we can hear you, but you're very faint. I don't know why. Let me try to increase the volume. Can can you say something now? Um, could you pause it for a second? Can you hear me now? Yes. So I had two questions, and thank you, Riz, for joining. I mean, I've learned a ton from your deep dives, and excited, very excited for Constellation tomorrow. Um, my first is more in the modeling. You go through detailed models. And I know from expectations investing, there's kind of like the simple process that's really helpful. On the first, I wanted to get a sense of those assumptions, like market share you were talking about or operating profit margins from different segments. Um, Are there specific sources or ways that you go about understanding the market's assumptions there? And then my second question is more on 
the newsletter side when you're first starting out? I know 10K was mentioning you're working for another firm and maybe it was more of a research project and it, now it's turned into this great newsletter business. I wanted to ask when you were first trying to gain subscribers and really stand out, what do you think helped you really become into this sustainable business of 1600 subscribers? Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, let me start with the first one. Uh, I think in terms of like, you know, market share, uh, you know, say I'm an individual investor and I, I don't, I, you know, there are benefits of having like a lot, I think a, a large Twitter account. So in many cases I get access uh, to some of the, you know, uh, like all data uh, providers. Uh, I, I, sometimes I get like, you know, free uh, subscription to, uh, some expert network calls, uh, transcripts and all that. So those things help. Uh, and, and honestly speaking, I, and after kind of going through some of those, I feel like, uh, if I don't have access, I wouldn't have access, uh, on those, uh, you know, things today. Like, for example, I have stream, I have in practice, uh, and I have also some direct access to similar web, uh, and maybe also a couple more. Uh, so, you know, if I didn't have those, I pr probably have like at least one or two, uh, just to, you know, get a sense, uh, uh, when I'm like, you know, writing a deep dive, it, it's, it doesn't, it's not required for every deep dive, but sometimes like I'm looking at, that's an e-commerce website and I want to see how that market share or web traffic has kind of, you know, evolved over the last three, four years. Like I don't have the data like in a, in a publicly available format. I have to go to like similar web or some other websites to uh, uh, to to kind of you know uh, get that historical data, right? So in in some cases I, I kind of do that, uh, but it's not like you know for for example for constellation software I didn't have to go uh, to this you know data providers or or something like that. But I I did read let's say in practices a uh, couple of interviews uh, on farmer. Uh, you know, constellation software employees. Uh, so those those things help. Uh, and if you are serious about investing as an individual, uh, maybe one or two two can be you know uh, can 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 really add value to your research process. Uh, I don't think it's super important. I don't think that you know without this you cannot succeed as an investor uh, because I I like I, like I was you know explaining during the call. Uh, it's like this in you know, a kind of, you know, first principles versus business school uh, experience, I, I would say. Uh, does business school help in, uh, in in many aspects? Yes. So similarly, does expert calls or some of these data providers help? Yes, in many aspects. But it also can be a sort of like a tool uh, to not think about, to think from first principles perspective. Like maybe you are seeing that this particular uh, in a marketplace or website, e-commerce website has, uh, you know, experienced just tremendous surge in like website traffic and all that. Uh, but uh, that, that can force you to think very short term, like, you know, this company is going to beat the quarterly estimates next month or next quarter or maybe next year, maybe uh, at best. But you have, you have no idea based on those data. Uh, what's going to happen in five years or ten years? But if you are if you're trying to be a long term investor, those are the questions that you need to focus more on, right? So I think uh, you know, like I said, you know, there are both 
pros and cons uh, to having these you know accesses and like data points. Uh, but it, you know, you just need to be aware that this is kind of the uh, like the other side of having access to some of these things. Uh, and on, on your second point, uh, Twitter helped a lot. Without Twitter, I don't think I would be able to. Uh, you know, gain 1,600, uh, more than 1,600 subscribers uh, with, with less than 10, two years. Uh, it maybe it probably would have been possible to, you know, get to that level at some point, but it would it'll definitely take much longer than two years, right? But, you know, uh, I, I, I wasn't building my Twitter account with this in mind, right? So I just become more active during, you know, the pandemic, and uh, after I lost my work authorization and had to leave that job, so I did not, uh, I don't know whether you, uh, the listeners understood this, I actually did not leave the job, uh, like, you know, uh, consciously. Like, I, you know, I lost my work authorization. I had to leave the job. I didn't have the option to, you know, stay at my job. Maybe I would have, you know, frankly speaking, maybe, you know, uh, if I had the work authorization in the U.S., I could just keep working and maybe maybe you guys would never have been born. Because I did not have that option, I was forced to think, uh, you know, I was forced to come, uh, come up with something on my own. And I kind of decided, you know what, the newsletter thing, I, I don't need a capital, like, you know, raise capital. I don't need to have capital. All you need is basically human capital, right? So uh, so that's when I started. And, I, and even when I was starting in September 2020, I had like 15,000 Twitter following. Right. And uh, that that was a huge help. And, you know, what's been helpful. Uh, so that 15,000 became 86,000. So that, you know, so obviously the account became larger and larger on Twitter. Uh, so that also helped a lot uh, in, in kind of in building my business over time. So I, I have a question. So mm-hmm. I, you, you... When when people follow you on Twitter, you get this notification saying you you got a new new follower, right? Right. So, um, like, do do people immediately um fo- follow you on Twitter and then sign up for the MBI deep dive? So, is is there some visibility on if if you add a hundred new followers, how many of them uh, will go and subscribe to MBI deep dives? Do do you have some uh, kind of correlation between that? Is is it one percent, two percent, five percent? What does that look like? Yeah, so, you know, I can't, in many cases, you know, uh, I, I think more, I'm pretty sure like almost 95% of my subscribers probably follow me on Twitter, right? Right. Uh, and and uh, not necessarily they uh, follow me and immediately, you know, subscribe to my work. It definitely takes them longer. Uh, I, and a lot of the people, let's say, I, I, I see sometimes uh, subscription from people I know who have been following me on Twitter for more than a year, right? So, so it definitely takes people, you know, you know, there are so many newsers out there, right? So, uh, some maybe people want to see whether you actually keep at it for a long period of time, or whether you just after like three months or six months, you said, you know what, enough is enough. I don't want to do this because it's it's probably more difficult than I thought, right? So, right. Uh, so yeah, people people take people take time. Uh, word of you know mouth works you know incredibly well. Sometimes people who don't subscribe and uh, sometimes they would see like you know maybe there's another account or another person who they you know like or who they you know who, like you know, whose opinion they value. 
uh, you know, they probably subscribe and they say, you know, it's good work and they like it. And that's why the other person would probably be kind of inclined to subscribe. Right. So right. Uh, I think what, what really helped, like, you know, a lot of people basically have, let's say, free list and then uh, they you know, sometimes provide free, like, you know, post or anal- analysis and uh, which would probably help them to convert from free to paid. I basically use my Twitter account basically as a free list. I don't have any free list like for my subscription, no, for my, for MBI deep dives. It's basically all paid. Uh, right. But, you know, so I, I, I share a lot like in terms of my like quarterly earnings updates or like whatever I'm thinking about certain businesses at times. Uh, so that, it, that, that's how basically I, I kind of Twitter, I use Twitter as like my free, uh, free list. Right. right. So the top of the funnel. Exactly, top of the funnel. And, you know, since I've been doing it for, what, almost two years now on Twitter, uh, and there are a lot of people who have been following me, you know, probably for the last, let's say, one year or more. Okay. Uh, so they, they have a fair idea of who I am, what I do, how I do, uh, and how I look at businesses. And if there is, like a, like I said, in a product market fit between how I approach it and how they think about businesses uh, and how they think about investing, uh, they would eventually end up, in, you know, subscribing. I, and I think it's not five percent, unfortunately. Ten k, it's uh, between one to two percent. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, for me, I don't know. Maybe for me, for some people, it could be five percent. Who knows? But for someone like me, it's around one to two percent. Sure. Generally speaking, if I gain five thousand followers, let's say this month, I'll probably have like you know one to two percent uh, of like, you know, uh, subscription, uh, new subscription from, from that, from that, like new following. Sure. Sure. Um, and when you post these quarterly, so every time, um, Amazon or, um, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, they, they report earnings every quarter, you, uh, write a thread on Twitter, summarizing what, what happened this quarter and what they said on the conference call and what your views are, some, something like that. Right. So when you post these quarterly updates, do, do you see an uh, uptick in the number of subscriptions? Yeah, no, I, I so, you know, it, it, it's usually not like one-to-one correlation. Like I said, I think people need a lot of convincing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of nudges uh, before they actually subscribe to work, right? Uh, you need a lot of goodwill, frankly speaking, uh, a lot of goodwill. Uh, you need to create a lot of goodwill before people start, you know, giving you, uh, you their hard-earned money, even if it's 10, 20, 100 bucks, whatever, right? Uh, if people are kind of mindful about subscribing to yet another newsletter, right? So, right. Uh, so that's that's definitely one of the things that, you know, uh, subscription fatigue that you kind of mentioned in your thread today. It's definitely a thing right? Uh, for sure. Uh, so people need a lot of convincing, uh, and it, uh, I don't, I, I, like, I, like I said, you know, I, I, I don't think it works like that just because I, today I posted on Amazon, uh, thread and people would just, you know, uh, go to my website in drove and to subscribe. Hey, I, I, I haven't seen those correlations. It's, it's a, usually a very, no, no, slow. people aren't going to your site in droves because you posted this thread. People are going to your site in droves because I posted the thread and pointed them to your uh, subscription page. <laughs> right, right. Maybe, maybe. All right. So ne- let's take the next uh, caller. His name is Vinod. He's a regular caller on the show. Okay. Hi, Tunke. Hi, Riz. Nice meeting you. 
um, uh, first of all, thank you for introducing uh, 10K to the FinTwit community. Uh, the kind of value he has is uh, uh, very huge. Uh, kind of writing and all the kind of learning he has, it is extraordinary. Thank you for that. And my question is basically the, oh, well, before I answer the question, I'll try to answer the question that you asked uh, 10K for the puzzle. Uh, I think the probability of uh, um, uh, the churn, uh, the user canceling the uh, subscription within 12 months, uh, it turns out to be 45.9. Is that the right answer? Well, so the, the question was, what's the probability that he has not churned? Okay. Maybe it is 30, close to 55 percentage? Um, well, uh, is, is that a guess or? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm in the gym. I just pulled out the base theorem calculator and then I plotted this with a 12 months uh, period. So uh, okay. that's how I write the number. So, so what, what what's your answer? Yeah, my answer is close to 55 percentage. Okay. All right. So Chris, do you think we should give it to Vinod? Uh, how did you explain it? Like how did you, how, how so, what are you saying? Yeah. I pulled the base theorem calculator. I plotted these two events and over 12 months and likely uh, likely of the event to occur. Uh, I, I plotted churn as an event to occur. That was basically uh, 46.9, I believe. Okay, so Sorry, suppose you didn't 9. have the calculator, what would you do? Okay, maybe, maybe I would have done uh, some uh, calculation myself, the base theorem calculator. Uh, calculation myself, but uh, I'm not too sure. Okay, all right. Oh, um, okay. So, so I don't know what to do here because there is. Um, okay, so there are people in the chat who who have answered the question. Okay. Um, so I I I said you know if if you want to answer the question, please get on the call. But maybe that that message didn't, didn't quite get through. Um, so. We know yeah, that I'm sorry. The first, uh, sorry, sorry, Tanke. I, I, I think there is this person think long run. Right. Uh, yeah. So I think that answer is correct. And maybe even though you know uh, he didn't probably he didn't listen to your message before. Right. But but he did come up with the right answer right, eleven right, twelve right. twelve minutes ago. Right. So maybe we should probably consider that answer. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Perfectly fine. Yeah. Sorry, Vinod. Next time. No worries. No worries. No worries. No worries. Yeah. So my question was uh, uh, to raise is basically to how to understand um, how do we effectively use your subscription, right? So uh, basically, we talked about concentrated uh, investing. Uh, it's more of uh, output. Um, but uh, I think you were writing. It's about you're picking up. Uh, a company every month and then maybe in a year uh, 12 company and and maybe five years down the line might have 60 companies do you how do you keep up um, uh, in terms of how, how frequently do you uh, rewrite about the company in terms of if there is any fundamental change in the, in, in the in the company fundamentals or any changes in the business model things like that uh, how do we, how effectively the subscriber will use based on the, the the sample the current base that you have how effectively subscribers are using uh, your service? I do have follow up question. Uh, maybe I'll I'll wait for the answer for this. Uh, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah, sounds good. 
Uh, no, that's a good question. Uh, so the way I kind of like, you know, let me kind of answer this a bit differently. Like I, I, I let me share how I would use MBA Egyptus if I were a subscriber, right? So if I were a reader and a subscriber uh, of, 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 let's say someone like something like this, uh, like what would I do, right? So I know that this, this website or this, let's say business is run by one person, right? So you're absolutely right. Like in five years, there will be 60 deep dives, right? Uh, if I, uh, you know, did, like if some, I, I don't know what will happen in five years. Maybe uh, I, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll not be able to post, let's say one or two months. Maybe it will not be 60. Let's just for the sake of it, let's say 60, 60 deep dives in five years. Uh, so it's impossible that, uh, you know, all, all these 60 companies will be updated and in a, in any frequency, uh, right, uh, uh, over a certain period of time. Uh, so I, I think that's quite intuitive. I think readers and subscribers understand that. Uh, so what, what basically I would do and what I suggest and encourage people to do is, like I said, do not rely on any individual, any newsletter, any investor, any analyst uh, solely out there, right? So at the end of the day, it is your money, it is your decision, it is, you know, you still have to think, you cannot outsource thinking to anyone, right? So this, you would, you should consider any newsletter, any, like, you know, Twitter account, whatever, like, as a helping hand, right, as a facilitator to your investing process, right? Nobody's going to make anyone rich or hopefully not poor, Right. So uh, you still have to do the work. So like, for example, I, I wrote on Uber, I don't know, probably 18 months ago. Right. I haven't updated Uber. Right. So if you are reading my post on Uber uh, and let's say you want to kind of, you know, uh, want to understand how things are uh, today, then, you know, that's just kind of dated. It's been 18 months. So you can. Yeah, there's, there are a lot of things that are still pretty valid. Uh, so you can read it and then you can kind of, you have to go through and to the recent transcript to see what's been happening. Then you update the model, right? So you don't have to go build it from scratch. You can just update the, let's say, the latest year and, and, and you can change uh, some of the numbers if you think that, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, embedded numbers are embedded. Or if you want to do reverse CCF, uh, that, I mean, if you, you can kind of, you know, change certain numbers to uh uh, change the assumptions uh, that was initially embedded in the model. Uh, so as you see, this is like an facilitator. You know, you don't have to build from scratch. You don't have to start from zero. And you can see some opinions. You can see some concerns uh, that was uh, out there 18 months ago, right? Uh, so that's, that's what basically uh, I hope to do, uh, I'm trying to do. Uh, and I'm also... If I own, let's say, if I own a particular company, I usually take a close look. I, I actually keep a lot closer look. Let's say, for example, I don't own Uber, so I don't actually follow uh, quite closely as, let's say, someone like Facebook, right? I, I own Facebook, so I, I follow it quite closely. And you would see me writing, like, threads uh, on a quarterly basis. And uh, sometimes I would just probably, you know, for my own purpose, I would just, you know, change certain numbers in my model to see what's happening. But I don't necessarily post those things because because when I'm posting, uh, you know, uh, uh, updated model, I want to be more polished, right? Because it's going to be used by like thousands of people. Uh, so, but obviously, you know, I do 
to change things and I, I know update certain things uh, on my own, but not necessarily I post all of those, right? So, uh, so you know, that's the thing. That's how I would kind of you know, look at it. Like, you know, oh, if you subscribe to my or any newsletter, I would just, you know, consider that as a facilitator, not as like a, uh, you know, full range of services that, you know, you might get, for example, for from Wall Street Research. Like if you subscribe to JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, they have like, I don't know, hundreds of people uh, covering like, you know, 20 different industries, 100 different companies. And they are basically one particular analyst is looking at, let's say, maybe 20 stocks, right? And so for them, it's easier to kind of update everything on a regular basis. Uh, but obviously, that's not going to be possible for someone like me, because uh, I don't quite expect to hire anyone. Or even if I hire someone, like it's not going to be possible to update 60 models. Right. That that's a great point about uh, you know yeah we we have models but then if you have to keep updating them then uh, it's it's not going to be possible as as one person you you have to hire more people or become a bigger organization or something like that which you may not have an interest in doing so yeah so when when people get uh, read your deep dives they are deep dives but they have a particular date attached to them and since then. Okay. If something material has changed at the company, uh, then you you sort of have to take that into account, and you're kind of on your own in helping in in yeah, adding yeah, that mean, to the yeah, model. Yeah, as I was saying, 10K, like uh, <laughs> like nothing is substitute to uh, you know to your own thinking. Like you, know, you see, everyone still have, have has to do their work. It's just you know. Uh, as I said, I, I would say, you know, I'm trying to minimize some work, but I'm not trying to eliminate all every little work that you you have to do as an investor. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's take the next caller. Uh, then the next caller is um, V. Uh, oh, it's it's this guy. Think long run. All right. There you go. <clears throat> hey. Hey, um, thanks so much for this discussion. And uh, it's really nice to hear the voices behind the digital selves on Twitter. So I really appreciate this chance uh, to hear from you guys. Uh, also a big fan of uh, Michael Moberson's book on expectations investing. So uh, to both of you, I had a question on the reverse DCF. Um, I always struggle with um, seeing what's baked in a securities price as it is dependent on the required rate of return that you use in the reverse DCF. So whether it's a 7% or a 10%, like um, how do you um, how do you grapple with that? Because uh, with interest rates rising sometimes, um, uh, you know, it seems like that itself is a, a variable that uh, feeds into a lot of what we actually uh, infer from a reverse DCF. So it kind of sometimes makes me think that reverse DCF can be uh, you know, more uh, subjective, uh, I mean, if, if not less, at least as much subjective as the DCF itself. So really appreciate uh, your answer to that. And uh, also wanted to say thanks so much for adding um, to the investment thinking and process um, uh, to the community, to both of you. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Great, great. Okay. Uh, no, that's a good question. Uh, and before I answer that, 10K, uh, I'm sorry to do this, but uh, I think I'll probably consider this as the last question. I didn't realize it's almost, you know, 3 p.m. Oh, uh, ab- absolutely. No, no, no problem. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so this is the last question. Um, okay. And uh, so do you want to take a crack at it first or should I go first? Uh, 
uh, let me let me kind of respond to this and okay. you can uh, add on to it. Uh, so there there are two ways uh, I'll probably respond to this. First of all, I think you know uh, you can you can insert your own sort of hurdle rates if you want. Uh, right. So if you if if you, if you if you think about I want to generate twelve percent CAGR return, uh, that's like my minimum hurdle rate. Then that that's what you can solve for. You say what I need to believe to get twelve percent, right? Uh, for me personally, uh, I I don't do twelve percent. I basically I, you know since it is you know you know there are two reasons why I do like seven eight percent. One is basically that's what market is trying to solve. I don't think market expected 12% CAGR return hasn't been generated in any long-term time frame. Like if you look at 100 years, 80 years, 90 years, it's usually like, you know, uh, you know, eight, 9% long-term return in the U.S. Uh, equity market, right? So, uh, uh, so yeah, so, you know, that's, that's probably the kind of close to what uh, market tries to solve. And also, it also depends on interest rate. And since we are currently at like, you know, one, 2% uh, interest rates are hovering between one and two in 10-year yield. Uh, it's probably close to seven, eight percent, not even eight, nine, or ten percent. So that's what I try to solve. And actually, frankly speaking, I think this is not a big deal because most companies will not be able to generate seven, eight percent, right? So think about it. If the market generates eight percent CAGR return in the next twenty years, what do you think? You know, it it consists of a small number of companies companies will probably generate 20, 20, you know, 20% CAGR return or more. And there's this long line of companies will generate very anemic return, right? A lot lower than, you know, 7, 8%. So I don't think you'll be kicking yourself saying, you know what, I overpaid because I generated 7, 8% return. I could have just, you know, uh, paid this and could have generated 10, 11%. Like, you know, in a long-term time frame. The price you pay, the longer it goes, like, you know, the IR return, uh, unless, you know, obviously, there's, you know, if you pay like $1 instead of $10, obviously that, that impacts, uh, that affects uh, your long-term return. But it's not a huge deal uh, if, you, if, you, if you kind of, you know, uh, because most of the companies that you are looking at are probably wrong companies, right? They are not are going to be those, like, you know, 20, 30% capital return generating companies. Uh, so the focus is actually more on uh, finding those great businesses and, and obviously want to pay a reasonable valuation and not like crazy valuation uh, so that it can, you can still generate those sort of return. Uh, but, you know, I, I know for a fact that, you know, most of the companies I'm looking at, they're not going to generate like 8% return. They're probably, you know, the average return from this business are going to be less than 8%. I know that, like you know, from history, from you know, it's it's quite intuitive that the average return is going to be lower, just average, simple average, right? But the companies that are going to be big winners, they are going to be so much bigger winners, and they will basically help the index to generate probably something like seven, eight percent return over 20, 30, 50 years period. Uh, so it, it's probably not as big a deal that people think it is. Uh, what's the right like discount rate or what, sorry, what's the right, like, you know, uh, IRR that you need to solve for. Uh, but it can be a huge deal in three, four, five years period. That's true, right? So that's, the, you know, that's all the tension uh, between the long-term and short-term. Uh, uh, in the long-term, you pick the right business. 
in most cases, you will turn out to be fine. Like I am, I know that examples of Microsoft that if you pick in the pick of the bubble, you can make uh, like you know, uh, even if it, if it, if it terrible return until 2015, and then you kind of you know you bailed out because of you know cloud and all this recent exciting stuff that they're doing. Uh, but, uh, and you can think about Cisco. Like if you pick pick to the bubble, you probably still make no money at all, right? So. Uh, so there are limits to every explanation in investing, right? There is no like black and white answers that you can just go and think everything's been solved. There are a lot of paradoxes in investing, right? Again, like it's not, it's important to understand the paradoxes, but it doesn't, it, it, it will not necessarily solve those paradoxes. Just understanding those paradoxes will not solve anything. You just have to live with it. That's how I kind of, you know, uh, think about it. Uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, Riz gave a great answer. So uh, there are one or two points that I will add to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the first point is okay. So if I uh, so with with the reverse DCF, I can solve for only one variable. We've already established that because we take the market price and then we try to adjust these uh, discounted cash flows to fit this market price. So if if I like, I can solve for the cash flows. Or if I like, I can solve for the growth rate or the margins, or or I can solve for the IRR, right? Um, so so I can I can uh, the IRR in this case being the the discount rate. I, I can solve for exactly one of those things with a reverse TCF. So uh, I like to look at my target return, and my my target return is usually uh, of the order of ten percent. So what I like to ask myself is I, I like to ask two questions. The first question is, okay, if I buy this stock at the current market price, w- will I get a 10% return? Or what is the distribution of returns that I will get? What is the probability that I will get more than 10%? What is the probability that I'll get less than 10%? If I buy the stock at the current market price, that is the first question. The second question I like to ask is, okay, Forget about the current market price. If I want a 10% return from this stock, then what is the price that I can pay? So if, if I pay this price, what is the probability that I will get 10%? If I pay maybe a higher price, then the probability will be lower that I get 10%. So what is the probability then? So how does the probability of my outcome depend on the price that I pay? So I like to think through these two questions and these two questions together uh, with a reverse DCF, they, they give me uh, sort of roughly, they help me triangulate something about what, what 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 is the market expecting for this particular company. Now, of course, if the market is uh, pricing in a 10% return for a, for a particular company, then its uh, expectation of future cash flows will be high. Whereas if it's expecting to get only 7%, uh, if the market is pricing in only an expectation of 7% for the company, then the, the its expectation of future cash flows will be low at the same market price, right? Uh, so the, the way the market works, um, the, or at least one theory for the way the market works is you, you take the, the risk-free rate of return, and then you estimate something called the equity risk premium. Uh, Professor Aswad Damodaran has done a lot of work on this. And then you essentially add the two. Uh, so, so the risk-free rate plus the equity risk premium plus 
a certain amount of extra premium considering the risk of this particular company relative to the rest of the market. And these three things together is the kind of return that you expect uh, from from the market. And Professor Raswad Damodaran, he, he's got a way of, uh, if, if you just go and look at his spreadsheets, uh, he, he has a way of arriving at these uh, uh, equity risk premiums and all that. So he has a way of arriving at this discount rate. Uh, but the thing with that discount rate that he arrives at is that it's not the same discount rate for all years. So it's actually each year has a different discount rate. So if you are interested in getting into the details, you, you can do that sort of thing. But in, in my case, I don't really get into all that. I just ask myself these two questions. And if I get reasonably satisfactory answers to this, if, if I think at the current market price, I have a reasonable probability of getting more than 10%, then uh, I, I will go and uh, other things being equal, I will go and um, put money into the stock. Otherwise, I won't. It's, it's uh, as simple as that for, for me. Right. No, that's, that's the first step that I was talking about. Like if you have a very target, if you have a target return, uh, like whatever that is, 10, 12, 15, 20 percent. Right. You can start that to kind of to try to solve that. But uh, like I said, I don't think market is trying to solve a 20 percent Kaga return. Market is supposed to not allow you to get 20 percent return. Right. Because uh, that, that means there's free money that's available to everyone. Uh, so, so market's always trying to figure out. Uh, to make sure that, you know, uh, companies are fairly priced. That's why it's hard to kind of beat the market and all that, right? But obviously, from time to time, every stock goes through kind of dislocation. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the difficult, it's still difficult to beat the market because it's hard to un like understand, like, you know, which companies are being, like, you know, dislocated from a valuation perspective and uh, to what extent, Right. And obviously, when these dislocations happen, there are a lot of macro uh, volatility, the macro uh, headwinds that, that are being discussed, like for example, right now, like, for example, like the, almost all the growth stocks that you see, like, you know, they're all like down 50, 60, 70, 80 percent. Are all these companies going to be, they deserve to be down 70, 50, 60, 80 percent? Probably not. Uh, but it's hard to find which ones don't deserve to be uh, down so much. Right. And that's where oh, basically that's easy. Those are the ones in our portfolios. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. We all hope that that is the case. Uh, so yeah. So you know that that's how that's that's where you can probably as an investor, uh, as as a savvy investor, can can uh, come in and uh, you know capitalize on those moments, uh, especially if you don't have those liquidity requirements and if you don't need money right now, uh, you can probably you can afford to take a longer term view. Uh, compared to someone who is kind of terrified to be exposed to uh, the market uh, because of this, like say, war going on because of this uh, pandemic or global financial crisis that's 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 happening, right? So uh, it's it's probably because of those aspects you can generate outsized return uh, even in those kind of terrible environments. Anyways, I actually gotta go right now. I'm really sorry about this. And, oh, okay. Uh, I can really enjoy uh, you know speaking with you guys. Uh, thank you so much, Shenke, for inviting me. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we really enjoyed it. So bye-bye, uh, Riz. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
so th- thank you all guys for showing up sorry about the technical difficulties we had uh, at at the beginning so that that added a uh, few um, maybe 10 or 20 extra minutes to the show so sorry about that um so th- thank you all very much for showing up i i hope uh, this was uh, as as interesting for you as it was for me um and uh, see see you all uh, next sunday bye bye